welcome everybody to episode 40, Gene Editing Mistakes. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett. And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yos, my man? Oh, I'm pretty good. You sound a little raspy over there. You catching yeah, man, a cold? I got a little, uh, I got a little something going down here. <clears throat> so, all you guys gotta excuse me for uh, this episode. Well, maybe, maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's because last time you were saying you were set, you had seasonal affective disorder, and now it's affecting your immune system or something. Now I'm <laughs> just affected. Now I'm just, <laughs> I think I'm just affected. Uh, I hate it because. As I gotten older, when I get colds, I get like more of a crispy voice. Uh, it, like gets into my throat more and gives me that raspy. Although I do think I get a little bit of a deeper voice thing going on. Yeah, so yeah. that could be a positive. I don't know, man. How you doing over there? All right? I'm good. I'm all right. I came back from uh, my little vacation on the mountain, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't have heat, so I'm a little bummed out that I have to. When you buy a place, you know, you got to fix your own HVAC units, and that could. That could seriously set you back, but uh, welcome to the that, world of home ownership. Yeah, right? yeah, it's not pleasant. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I always think of the movie The Money Pit, where uh, yeah. I think it was it was it Michael Keaton. Yeah, house, and then everything goes wrong once he moves in. <laughs> yeah, I feel uh, like that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. So we got we got a cool uh, we got a cool topic and a great guest. So the name of the the show was Gene Editing Mistakes, and I, I saw this paper that came out in Nature Biotech where I'll discuss it a little bit, and. Um, it, it talks about – I won't get into the details now, but it, you know, Yosef and I talk a lot about gene editing, CRISPR, and talent technology where you can go in and change, basically like take a pencil, erase a mutation, and redraw in the correct sequence. And it's awesome technology, and people are using it a lot, and stem cells were using it. But like everything, there are off-target effects. You know, you're using enzymes that cut DNA. And so how the hell do you know that it's actually specific and not cutting the DNA on all these crazy places? And this paper – uh, that we're going to talk to today, and our guest, Dr. Fred Alt, uh, from um, uh, at Harvard. Harvard. Yep. Yeah, he's going to tell us about a technique they discovered uh, that they think could be used to detect these off-target effects. So it kind of has very broad range, um, you know, utilis- utility, if you will, not just in stem cells, but in all of science. But in the stem cell world, we're using a lot of CRISPR nowadays. So um, I thought it'd be nice to have him come on and change the pace. Yeah, definitely an important topic. So uh, I'm looking forward to that that interview. <laughs> So we are the uh, Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Check them out at ISSCR.org. Look at all they have to offer uh, in terms of stem cell research and advocacy, as well as the big meeting coming up in Sweden that's getting closer and closer. Yosa and I booked a nice little spot there in Sweden. We're all ready. We're going to be hanging out downtown uh, and at the conference recording and grabbing you and your friends to do interviews uh, on the floor. Uh, make sure you go to stemcellpodcast.com and um, enter in your name and your email address. We got this cool new thing that right after the show airs, if you're signed up, we email you um, basically all of the papers that we discuss and all of the topics, including the episode link, right there. So you're, you get all of the papers and their links right to your email. Uh, just one way to make your life a little bit easier. So um, make sure you go on there, sign up. Um, and you know, check out all the past episodes. Um, yeah, and again, we don't spam your account, so you'll probably get like twenty six in the whole year of these emails. So uh, yeah, no spam. Just right yeah. after the episode, we give you a we give you a, a summary, if you will. Um, and I think it's pretty well received by by the statistics we see. Most people are opening them and, and checking them out. So um, I'm glad to see that people are, are are kind of enjoying that feature. 
What else you got, man? Anything else? Nothing on my end. Uh, you got anything else besides Saratoga? Looking forward to Saratoga still. Yeah, NextGen, nextgenstemcell.com. People are registering for the NextGen Stem Cell Conference. That's in May. Um, make sure you go there and give a register. You can use podcast as a code. You'll get a discount. Um, please get get your get there early because by the end of the month, the early the early registration fees go away. So you want to order by you want to register by the end of the month. And with that, I guess we can get into the uh, science roundup. That's sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Um, you know, Thermo's been really great in helping us push the podcast forward. We had a great guest last time come on and talk about some some cool tools that they're offering. You can go to our website, stemcellpodcast.com, click on the banner there, uh, and it will take you to uh, Thermo. You can read about all their different products that they have to offer to help push your research forward. Yos, my man, you want to get into it? Okay, so let's start with the Nature Neuro article, a neuroscience where they impl- implanted bogus memories into sleeping mice. So they inserted electrodes into the medial, uh, medial forebrain bundle, the uh, brain's reward system, and into the hippocampal place cells, so the brain's inner GPS. So you got two electrodes, and they were I- able to identify place cells that fired when the mice were in a particular uh, field in wherever they were uh, measuring, and then they stimulated the medial forebrain bundle, or MFB, while they were awake, and then the mice started to prefer that location. And then what they did is when they slept, they kept stimulating that MFB uh, whenever the place cells fired, and so they were able to basically increase the amount of time that they spent in a location by five-fold more than just random uh, MFB stimulation. So they were able to, like place a memory a false memory into the sleeping mice so i thought that was cool so weird yeah so sci-fi i know right um there was a molecular psychiatry study uh finding genetic factors associated with autism uh are linked to better cognitive ability in people who do not have autism so some of these genes that are found in autism uh you know it's the sort of that fine line behind like genius and just sort of you know defect at, at some point. So uh, some of these uh, autism genes are associated with better cognitive ability. So I thought that was interesting. Very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, ever ever since I found out Einstein's son was uh, schizophrenic, you know, it just goes to show there's a fine balance between, and I think uh, another risk factor for having autism besides, you know, age of the man uh, is also uh, two parents that are professors who are scientists you know really? the, yeah that's another risk factor too so like i could totally see that and then you know the more and more i learn about this the more and more i think that these diseases are what i i like to call prefrontal cortical disease and not just so like autism schizophrenia all these diseases they all you know it's just like it, it's it's like a dosage thing in, yeah. in the one region of your brain and depending how far you tip you might manifest it differently. So that, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a nature study identifying the neural circuits that allow us to direct muscle movements. So this helps explain why injuries that disrupt a, a brain's ability to carry out movement planning typically impair a person's ability to make movements on just one side of their body. So the brain's pre-motor, premotor cortex is active during the planning period, what they call the planning period, and it happens a fraction of a second before 
the, a person initiates a movement. So this is the first direct evidence that the brain translate this pre-movement signal into motor commands. And they used optogenetics to show this, but they silenced neurons in a premotor cortex-like area of the mouse brain known as the anterior lateral motor cortex. And that's how they were able to show this uh, mm. pre-planning phase. So you can find that in nature. Uh, there was a stem cells, jur- the journal stem cells study uh, showing that loss of TAF 4B or TAF 4B in male mice results in premature exhaustion of their fertility. So uh, the gene loss it, uh, causes a deficit in the number of progenitor cells at the embryonic stage of a mouse's reproductive de- development. And the mice uh, reproduce, but only until they are about four months old, and it doesn't affect female reproduction. So mice could, you know, normally be fertile for two years, but these guys burn out at like four months. And interestingly, uh, humans have this gene, TAF4B, and uh, there's previous evidence to show that it's associated with low sperm counts. So I thought it was interesting that... uh, Here's the million dollar question. If you overexpress it, are you more fertile? Oh, that is a great question. Uh, They didn't do that experiment, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I guess not. Um, Interesting. That'd be cool. Make you super fertile. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So there was a PNAS, our favorite journal. PNAS. study showing that infused oxytocin, the love hormone, into the uh, brains of drunken rats sobers them up by preventing alcohol from accessing the delta subunit GABA A receptors in the brain. So so much much wrong with that whole sentence there, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Drunken rats, yeah, so it sobers them up. So maybe uh, there'll be some oxytocin uh, I don't know, aerosols for drunken people on the streets in the future. We'll see. Um, There was a Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry study showing that xanthohumol, a compound that comes from hops, you know, that they use to make beer, uh, can protect neuronal cells from oxidative damage. So a lot of people are thinking, you know, saying, oh, see, beer is good for you. But um, it's this particular compound from hops that can protect neuronal damage, uh, oxidative damage. Yeah. So that That sucks for me because I don't really like beer very much and I particularly don't like hoppy beer. So I guess yeah. that's not going to help me out. Yeah, I'm an IPA fan myself. Yeah, you are. Um, let's see here. There was a JAMA study. JAMA, uh, JAMA. Yeah, showing that. Uh, let's see here. That uh, found that the measure of brain inflammation in people who are experiencing clinical depression is increased by 30%. And they used uh, PET uh, to visualize activated microglia in uh, their patients. So you can find that in JAMA psychiatry. There may be an inflammation side to depression. Uh, there was a diabetes study showing that treating rats with a probiotic of human lactobacilli that are engineered to produce glucagon-like peptide or GLP-1 uh, can convert upper intestinal epithelial cells into gut uh, into in the gut into insulin producing cells. So uh, the rats fed this probiotic ended up with thirty percent lower blood glucose levels. Wow. So I, th- I thought that was a novel approach. It's all about towards, the gut, man. Yeah, treating diabetes. Um, diabetes. Ad- yeah, there was an addiction biology study showing that ghrelin, the appetite hormone, increases sexual activity in mice. 
So I don't know how that works out. <laughs> I guess when you're hungry, it stimulates something. Uh, there was an annals of clinical and translational neurology study showing that clotho with a K, uh, this gene which is produced, uh, it's a protein produced in the kidney and brain, and a single copy of the gene that increases clotho levels is associated with longer lifespan uh, and better heart and kidney function. So looking at the brains of 422 cognitively normal men and women age 53 and older, they found that the variance in that gene predicted the size of a region in the brain called the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And this is vulnerable to atrophy as we age. So uh, this variant increased clotho levels, which meant larger uh, brain volume, and this co- correlated with better cognitive wow. performance. Yeah, I've heard a lot of this clotho gene. Clotho? Uh, I haven't heard a lot about clotho. Yeah, I don't... I, I, you know, I just re- in doing this podcast, I've run across it quite a few times. And uh, I, anyhow, so um, finally, I'm going to end on a nature medicine study uh, where they published um, 1,000 autism genomes. And uh, it, they sequenced 340 whole genomes from 85 families. Um, each with two children affected by autism. And what they found was 69% of the siblings had no overlap in the genes known to contribute to autism. Only 31% of the time did they share the same autism-associated gene changes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, giving another clue to autism, which, you know, you know better than me is, you know, there's there's so many different types and it's... It's kind of like a pandemic at this point. <laughs> the amount of, the, at least in the U.S., the rates are are scary. Yeah, and they're not really they they didn't really get as much as they or they're not they continue to not really get as much as they hope from all this genetic studies. You know, yeah. it's not, nothing's jumping off the page. I think it's a lot of people now turning to environment yep. and gene environment interactions and and predispositions. But you need something else. So that just speaks to that, man. Yeah, yeah it's they, scary, man. They Real say scary. they say your genome like uh, gets the gun in locked position, you know, in the in yep. position of fire, and the environment pulls the trigger. So, um, yeah. Anyhow, uh, what do you have on your end? So I'm. This is a kind of a, a start on a depressing note. I read this in the Huffington Post. Uh, the title is "Congrats, Young Scientists," but you face the worst research funding in fifty years. Oh, great! Yeah, I know. This is what I like to, you know, start my day off with. So <laughs> it, it was basically Dr. Francis Collins, you know, director of NIH, appeared before the Appropriations Committee in the House of Reps, and uh, he's basically warning lawmakers, considering you know their future appropriations of the budget. Uh, and saying that investments are falling relative to inflation, and he said forcing changes will, you know, like likely snowball into the future. Basically, saying that young, you know, scientists find themselves entering the worst financial environment in a half a century. Um, he's saying, given international trends, the U.S. will relinquish its historical international lead in biomed research in the next decade. And, you know, unless they really get their asses in gear and do something about it. Um, and, you know, it's like the same story, right? He, he's warning them that these trends are going to convince future generations of researchers that their that their field is, is just – and he used the word inhospitable. You know, fewer scientists mean – you know, would mean fewer scientific discoveries and more difficult for companies to profit. And it's just like a snowball effect, you know. Mm. Um, he says it's it's an incredible problem. This is – this is he cites 50 years. This is the worst it's been in 50 years. But, you know, continuing to read it, Yos, I don't think that really anything is going to be done about it. Um, you know, they're saying that, you know, the appropriations are what they are and 
really like he can sit up there and and complain and give them the facts but the budget is going to be what it is and without you know most likely they're not really going to give it give it a give it a bump like a like a bump or a massive increase to the point he was there saying at least we got to get rid of these sequestrations you know the sequestrations was like this 10 20 10 I think it was a 10% cut off everything and when you have 10% of an already small budget it's a lot more and so you know he was saying at least we got to, you know, you got to really think about that. So, you know, I don't know if there's anything good in sight here, but it was, you know, Dr. Collins getting up there and pleading his case once again. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This, um, we talked about this, I think, uh, maybe in the last show. I think we talked about how Oklahoma was trying to ban embryonic stem cell research, make a yeah, federal law. Yeah, stuck on stupid over there. Yeah, well, the White, the, wide, the White House, it was a White House passage of ESL research ban in Oklahoma. So the House overwhelmingly passed legislation. This was Monday, last Monday. So it's the 14th we're recording this today. So um, they passed overwhelmingly designed to prevent ESL research in Oklahoma. So um, the, basically they, they were saying there was some argument on the floor, but not really because I think it passed like 80 to 13 or something. Mm-hmm. And someone basically said, so it, what you're saying is it's, it would be possible to lock up a scientist in jail for up to one year under your bill if he was conducting research on stem cells. And this guy, uh, Dan Fisher, a Republican, said yes, basically yes. Really? Um, so now the bill will head to the Senate. Although they say similar stem cell research bans have failed in the legislature in previous years, but it overwhelmingly passed. Now it's going on to the Senate. And I don't know. I'm trying to think. I don't know any researchers in Oklahoma anyway, and I looked up our analytics from the podcast. I don't really see any of our listeners in Oklahoma. So uh, maybe it's just not a popular thing down there anyway. I don't know, man. Hmm. Um, But again, just gives you the mindset of certain people, right? I mean, they're just, like you said, stuck on stupid. (laughs) This was an interesting paper. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Yos. Um, I'm trying. It was in Nature Neuroscience. It was out of the lab of Dr. Jovica Ninkovic and Magdalena Goetz. Oh, she's and one of my talking heroes. About, yeah, limited self limited self renewal of stem cells in the brain. So we know that stem cells in the brain produce, you know, neural cells, neurons, and people want to harvest those for, you know, for therapeutic purposes. And this team of researchers have now discovered that the self-renewal rate of the stem cells in the adult is limited. And it explains why their number drops over the course of the lifetime. So, um, you know, generation of neurons and things is predominantly limited to development. And in the adult stage, it only takes place in a very, you know, limited part of the brain. And until now, I guess it was thought that maintaining the stem cell will itself was based on the self-renewal of individual stem cells. But this group was able to refute this, and what they've shown is that both the self-renewal rate and the diversity of neurons formed from stem cells are limited, mm. and that the number of stem cells actually decreases with age. So it's it's not like a, you know, it's not on a stem cell basis, it's that the actual pool diminishes with age. Um, so this is very interesting. It's a lot more detail you can find in the Nature Neuroscience. There's a new test uh, that's use uses human stem cells to identify drug side effects. Now, I always thought this would be a cool technology for for um, for stem cells. By a um, this is basically scientists have d- developed a test that uses cells from a single donor's blood to p- blood to predict <laughs> whether a new drug <laughs> whether a new drug will cause severe reaction in humans. 
I guess they so they saying this could avert disasters like the 2006 trial of the this 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 whatever drug TG9 whatever, which led to six healthy young men being admitted to ICU with multiple organ failure. Whoa! Um, and then these were volunteers receiving this experimental drug, and they had what's called a cytokine storm. Did you ever hear about this? No. It's like a catastrophic immune inflammatory reaction, um, and it's from off-target effects uh, side effects of this drug. So these current tests to use these cells. Um, um, are they basically from from your blood? They can screen drugs using these cells to identify this uh, off-target effect or side effect to see if these drugs will be safe before you start taking them. Um, so it's more like this like tailored drug test before you start taking a drug. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I saw this here: uh, lung cancer stem cell therapy to be trialed in the UK. It'll involve 56 patients with metastatic lung cancer. So these British patients will really be the first in the world to receive a pioneering cell therapy that these scientists hope will transform the treatment of lung cancer. Mm. And it uses stem cells from the bone marrow that have been genetically modified to find, seek, and destroy cancer cells. Um, and so if successful, it would offer hope to lung cancer patients who continue to face uh, one of the worst outlooks on all cancer patients um, I didn't. I'm looking at the statistics. This I didn't realize it was this bad. More than forty thousand people are diagnosed with the disease in the UK, and not even we're not even talking about the US. And only five percent of the patients survive beyond ten years. Um, so that's that's pretty wild. And like I said, it will involve fifty six participants. Um, and they've been diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, meaning you know they've metastasized and gone other places. Um, and they would use their bone marrow to activate this gene, put it in the body, and they'll basically go and find them. And it's more of like that apoptotic suicide strategy, Yost, where they get in the cells and they kill them. Um, so this is a new trial that's that's going to go on in the UK. Um, this here, some breast cancer cell, some breast cancers are like stem cells gone bad. Um, so testing breast cancer cells for how closely they resemble stem cells could identify the most aggressive cases of the disease. This is from a new study. So researchers found that breast cancers with a similar pattern of gene activity to that of adult stem cells have a very high chance of spreading to other parts of the body. So they have a high met, like metastatic rate. That's interesting. So what, so what they're doing is they, they can assess a breast cancer pattern of activity in, in these stem cell genes. So they look in the breast cancer and if, they are, if they're stem cell-like, I guess is the idea, then they know that they, they these have the potential to identify women who might need intensive treatment to prevent the disease from recurring or spreading. And they're talking about this new genetic test of 323 genes that they can undergo to see how severe or how, like, you know, meta metastatic their cancer will be. So that's very interesting. So stem cells can reduce MS brain damage was the headline of this one. This was uh, what they're saying could herald as a major advance in treating MS and multiple sclerosis. Um, this was a small phase two trial in Italy, really the first of its kind, where they took patients' own blood forming or these hematopoietic stem cells from the patient and put them back into the patient. And they're saying that patients in the treatment group had 80% fewer new damaged brain areas called uh, these T2 lesions compared to those who got the immunosuppressant chemotherapy drug mitoxanthrone, but no stem cells. So they're going to move on to phase three where they'll look for signs of efficacy in uh, reducing the disability. So that's a pretty cool small trial in Italy. Um, I thought this was cool in stem cell reports. In vivo therapeutic potential of MSCs or mesenchymal stromal cells. I'm sorry, they're not really MSCs of stromal cells. Mesenchymal stromal cells depends on the source and isolation 
um, the isolation procedure. So you can isolate these mesenchymal stromal cells from many different tissues using a variety of different procedures, I guess. And so here, this group comparatively assessed the ex vivo and in vivo properties of these MSCs isolated from either adipose tissue or bone marrow by different purification methods. And they were able to find that certain sources and certain procedures were better in terms of their functionality. And so I guess they said adhesive MSCs from the bone marrow were the most effective in preserving tissue viability. Uh, so that's cool. So it's offering more standards, if you will, on how to harvest and use them. Nice. Stem cell reports the generation of scaffoldless hyaline, did you say hyaline or hyaline? I've heard it before, yeah. Cartilaginous tissue from human IPS. Um, so they established um, human IPSCs that express GFP and chondrocytes, and they developed a method for generating scaffoldless cartilage uh, from um, induced pluripotent stem cells. And these these derived neocartilage were able to integrate into adjacent and native articular cartilage. Um, so it gives a, a, a cool method to generate cartilaginous tissue from stem cells. This is some areas, you know, like bone and cartilage. We haven't talked about a lot in the show, but I think we're going to talk about it next episode. Is that right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We got that think, lined up. Yeah, I think we peak. got an interview lined up uh, to talk about how you can generate bone and or cartilage from stem cells. So I thought I would leave that. And lastly here, let me just um, give a little plug to the paper that we're going to discuss with our next guest. This was in Nature Biotechnology. Uh, it's out of the lab of Dr. Frederick Alt. Genome-wide detection of DNA double-stranded breaks induced by engineered nucleases. And without really discussing that, we should just move on to the interview. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? All right, thanks, Yo. So it's exciting, really exciting on episode 40, our nice round number, episode 40. I actually can't believe we made it all the way to 40. Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> we have a really, really great guest, uh, Dr. Fred Alt. Uh, and, and I'm going to give a little brief intro here. Um, Dr. Alt received his PhD in biology from Stanford University. I won't give the year, uh, Fred, uh, and sometimes the guests don't like that. And his uh, did his postdoctoral work with, at MIT with David Baltimore, who I've basically grew up in science reading a lot of his work. Um, he was a professor at Columbia University from 82 to 1991. I gave those years where he became an HHMI investigator in 1987. And then in 91, Dr. All moved to Harvard Medical School as a professor of genetics and pediatrics and a Howard Hughes investigator at Boston Children's, a uh, senior investigator at the Immune Disease Institute, and became the director of, of Immune Disease Institute and a program in cellular medicine, of Children's Hospital in 2009 and president of the Immune Disease Institute in 2010. Um, Dr. Alt has been elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Academy of Microbiology. Um, he's received numerous awards that, for the sake of time, I won't even start to list. There's, there's quite a few. And the, really the broad focus of his lab, which we're going to dive into in a minute, is really uh, you know the elucidation of mechanisms that generate uh, something that fascinates me, antigen receptor diversity in the immune system and mechanisms that maintain genomic stability in mammalian cells. And I think that's really what we're going to dive into today. Dr. Alt, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you. So uh, let's, let's give a little context, though, if you wouldn't just mind uh, introducing yourself as a scientist and what your lab is doing and, and, and what, you know, what your scientific goals are. Yeah, um, so... So, so we have two general goals, and they intersect. Um, and we've been we've been working on these problems. I mean, I've been working on almost my entire career. So, as you said, we're interested in mechanisms that generate 
antigen receptor diversity and the immune system. And the basic mechanisms that do that uh, involve enzymes that cut specific gene segments in DNA and then paste them together so you can make this tremendous diversity uh, of antigen receptor, say antibody genes that can recognize almost any foreign pathogen. The other thing that we've worked on for many years is the genome stability. And, you know, that was something, one aspect of that I discovered when I was a graduate student at Stanford. And we discovered that uh, cancer cells can amplify genes uh, in response to drug resistance. And so it was sort of the first molecular demonstration of genomic instability in, in, in cancer cells. So those two processes have been my focus my entire career. And they intersect because... Um, Genomic instability or genomic stability is maintained by DNA repair pathways. And one of the DNA repair pathways that maintains that is the same one that we and, and others had shown years ago is the one that joins antigen receptor gene segments together. And when that, those repair pathways are impaired, then breaks that get made in the genome get, don't get joined properly, and then they get joined to other sites in the genome across the genome where they can cause translocations or genomic deletions that are the hallmarks of genomic instability and can, uh, down the road, lead to or augment uh, uh, cancer, transformation into cancer cells. So that's the general area that we, we, we work on. Excellent. And I, I'm just such a big fan of the somatic hypermutation. I almost became an immunologist when I found out that our immune system does this sort of hyper evolution just to evolve to a, a pathogen and attack it. And it, it's really amazing how th that whole process. So anyone out there, go take an immune uh, immunology course if you can and learn about all, all the processes that happens that how we uh, in the adaptive immune system, how we fight diseases. But um, yeah, that's, that's great that you have two sort of arms that come together and deal with this, you know, I, I guess, well, for today, we're going to talk about gene editing, but um, how, how it converged together, these two arms of your lab. No pun intended. You're saying arms. I think that's funny. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, DNA. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot uh, about that. You know what, uh, Fred, I guess, would you mind, in best way you can, and we're talking about sticking DNA together, you know, kind of you use that uh, kind of cut and cut and glue together uh, could you talk a little bit about that i think that'd be nice to introduce that that uh, like a maybe a little basic um how how dna can uh recombine or kind of stick together because i know that's going to be a lot of the basis to to how you can utilize gene editing and things like this yeah um so uh when you have what, what we're going to be really focusing on here is when you have breaks in your genomic dna how those get put back together and there's uh, two very general ways that that can happen. And what they are are actually the two major pathways that repair double-strand breaks in mammalian cells. And one that's been well-known uh, for a long time is something called homologous recombination. And it's a complex process that I won't go into because we don't work on it and I would not do it justice. But the key thing is there you have to have cells that are have replicated their DNA, and they have two copies of each chromosome. And if they have a break on one chromosome, they can use the, the, a template of a homolog that matches up with it on the other chromosome to just perfectly repair it. Um, so that's one way that, that breaks can be repaired. But the other way that breaks get repaired, and the pathway that really is dominant 
in somatic mammalian cells. Homologous recombination is very important, uh, you know, and, and very early development. But the um, in somatic mammalian cells, most of our tissues, immune cells, brain cells, if they, uh, you know, skin cells, when there are breaks introduced into DNA, there they get they get repaired by something. Another pathway that we helped to, to discover, we know a lot about, uh, and that's something called non-homologous DNA end joining. And it's what it sounds like. You take two ends uh, uh, of a break of DNA, and you basically just join them back together. And that prevents chromosomal breaks and subsequent downstream damage. It has the one um, difference from homologous recombination is that when you put double-strand breaks directly back together, sometimes they can be processed a little get bit, and you might delete uh, a nucleotide or two, or you add a nucleotide or two. So that is, you know, uh, it could cause mutations, but uh, that's something that our, our somatic cells tolerate to keep the chromosomes together and not allow them to keep breaking and join to other chromosomes where, where worse things could happen. So the, those are the two pieces. And the one that's really relevant to the topic of gene editing and for VDJ recombination and all these things that happen in, in, in the somatic cells is um, uh, the, the, the end joining pathway that just puts the ends back together. Mm. Mm. And so really, so, so now I guess we can maybe, maybe let's, as we transition more towards the, the paper at hand, um, let's, let's talk about how, how this was exploited for the technique of gene editing. So, you know, a bit that's the one thing I love about science. You take what the body does, and then the scientists we look for ways that we can exploit that technically and and use it in ways to 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 kind of fix things, if you will. So, talk a little bit about. Um, let's talk a little bit about th- this process of gene editing and how we use these processes of recombination and such to to kind of do this, and then we can jump into the paper and and and, and talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so now there, there are various types of um, gene editing, but the, 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 I mean, all of the current um, forms of gene editing and the big excitement is being able to design enzymes that will actually introduce a very specific break what we, into uh, any target sequence in the genome that one wants to target. And, you know, there's a, a series of them. The uh, Cas9 guide RNA enzymes are, are the ones that are now really the ones most recently developed and are, are really widely used because of their ease of use and their specificity. And then there are others, tailings, zinc fingers, but they all do the same thing. Um, you, dis- you find a target sequence in, in the DNA and you introduce a break. So once you um, make that break, then we go back to that other uh, pathway of DNA repair that I mentioned, homologous recombination. And, and um, when you make a break, uh, several things could happen to it. It can get rejoined, which is what I said happens most frequently. It can also get joined to other breaks in the genome to cause translocations, if there are other breaks. To. And when you put in a homologous substrate, which is what people do, they make a substrate that, uh, say you have a mutation in a gene, they make a break in that gene, and then they put in a normal copy of that gene and when you have a break and a normal copy that you put in ectopically introduced into the cell that can recombine through homologous recombination with the gene and actually repair it just like uh, homologous recombination would repair a, a gene with its other chromosome when you after you've replicated it so that's the basis for gene editing and other types of gene editing can also eliminate genes, and that's just by making a break in them and let them join. If you wanted to get eliminate uh, a 
particular function in a stem cell that you're going to put back in to eliminate maybe the ability of a virus to infect it, things like that. Mm. So basically the idea is it's a technology that's been developed uh, that recently that allows one to put a break into any gene that you want, including a mutated gene that you want to fix. And by putting the break in, you can use a variety of methods to repair it afterwards. So can I just ask this, and, and now it's just like sparking about, where, where did the real breakthrough come in then with this technology? It sounds like, you know, this, the whole idea of recombination and this idea has been around for a long time, right? But not since recent, really, um, has this technology emerged as something that could be readily used. So was, was there something that was really a, uh, was a, a real breakthrough that said, okay, yeah, now we can actually use this in the lab? Well, I mean, the, yeah, it's like... Um all things in science, uh, breakthroughs come by through one step at a time, small observations. Yep. One thing leads to the next, and then once one knows they can do something, they can improve on it. So you could say breakthroughs came um, decades ago. When, <laughs> when, yeah, well, when one found that they you know, put a target in and could, could cut a piece of DNA where they sure. wanted, only where they put a target, and then show that you could put a homologous substrate in and repair it. So that was a breakthrough, and that's been around for a while. But what really made the breakthrough to take that to the next level is over the past several decades, one step at a time, various investigators in various parts of the world decided to make designer enzymes that could actually be introduced into a cell and cut any place. You decide where you want to cut in the whole genome, and you can introduce a break there. Um, that was not possible uh a decade ago, really. Okay. Uh, then the zinc finger enzymes were made, and you know they work pretty well. And then the tailins, it's another class of enzymes, were um, discovered and invented, and they work really well um, in terms of their specificity. And then most recently, the Cas9 guide RNA class of enzymes. They're all they all work differently, but they all have the same principle that you can introduce these, um, uh, we'll say, enzymes into cells that will make. That spe specific break, and then the advances that have been building and building is this, number one the specificity of getting those cuts, so having it go where you want it and not somewhere else, and then number two the ease of putting those in the cells so that you can get a high level of cuts if you need to 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 really edit the gene. So it's it's a series of advances, but probably you know in the last number of years it first with the tailins and then with the Cas9 guide RNAs more recently, the enzymes are just getting more and more specific and easier and easier to work with. And so many people in the field are working on them to just make them even better, you know, where they have, there are some issues with them. And, and, and uh, now ways are out there that we hopefully have contributed to that, that can, people can use as assays to, to even improve on them. Yeah, yeah, and so that, Yosef, I, you know, I, I think about this. If I, if I take my science hat off and I'm listening to this and I'm saying to myself, wow, that sounds really cool, but uh, I'm listening to you guys say things like cutting DNA, right, and slicing DNA, and it's specific. Um, and I guess the question is, um, I, I, that would be the concern, right? How do you actually know that um, that where you're cutting and the, you know, um, the breaks you're making in the DNA are where you want them to be and not having any off-target effects, meaning not getting cutting random pieces of DNA in the genome. And so I guess you know, that's really um, what, what the technology that uh, you know, recently published um, from your lab. So I guess why don't we now kind of uh, – this is a Nature Biotechnology paper, Richard Frock the first author. Is he the only first author? I want to make sure if there's another uh, first author. I'm Jesse getting. Who was the uh, co-first author. Okay, so Jesse Who. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, 
just recently published. So let's talk about that, Fred. Let's talk about um, the problem that was possible off-target effects, and and then kind of what you what you what your group has really come up with to, to help identify some. Okay, so so um, the problem, I mean, that 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 um, uh, has been a, a, a real question in the field is that all of these enzymes, like you know, as you design them. Um, are not always perfect, and while they've been improved, improved, and they they cut really well at a at a site, and they've been able to engineer them so that they cut a site that you plan to have them cut at. The the, the problem with off targets is that um, to varying degrees, they can also cut at other places in the genome. Not and 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 the real challenge for the field. I mean, it depends on what you're using it for. I mean, for for some applications that may not be a problem but if you are going to manipulate someone's stem cells and you want to go in and you want to specifically cut a gene that say is mutated causing an immunodeficiency and replace it with a good one while you're doing that you don't want to make breaks in other genes that would be deleterious to the cells and you definitely the, the other bigger thing you don't want to make breaks that cause translocations or delete to oncogenic uh, consequences and, and cause cancer. And, you know, this is something in all uh, gene therapy that when you insert something into the genome, and this had been a problem with other types of gene therapy in the past, you insert a virus or something in, it does what you want in terms of correcting the defect, but it activates uh, something else and has what you would call collateral damage. Yeah. So so that 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 is the, the, the thing, and I think that um, everybody in the field wants to take their enzymes and look at them very carefully before they would... Uh, alter a stem cell, put it back into a patient to know that they've done everything possible to eliminate all types of collateral damage off target sites and everything that occurs downstream of that, which are many different types of things that that, um, could have bad consequences. So that, that, that's the, that's the challenge and um, the existing methods that were out there. um, I think were, were uh, until recently, I mean, our, our study and there's another one published that uh, also says they can do something Related uh, that 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 the, um, the 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 sensitivity of the technologies for detecting off targets uh, was was very low and um, relatively people you wouldn't know that people would make predictions of what should the enzymes cut but they wouldn't find all the sites um, and uh, so so as a new tech some other type of technology was needed there, there would be just deep sequencing technologies and other types of technologies that were existing up until you know. Till these papers, our paper and another paper was published. And what ours does is exploit a totally different type of technology to go in without any idea what your enzymes cut and be able to look in cells and say, where do they cut everywhere across the genome and find those. And then secondly, not only to find where they cut, but more importantly also, or equally importantly, to find out what are the consequences of those cuts. If you make cuts, random cuts on two or, or, or off-target cuts on two or three or four other chromosomes, what do they translocate? Do, do they translocate to other sequences in the genome and, and, and recombine with others, which they do? Uh, do they cause deletions? Do they cause things that, that could um, activate uh, processes that would lead to cancer later as, a, as an off-target effect? So what what we thought we would could provide because we developed these technologies for our own real basic research purposes. But when we saw the challenge, we realized that our technology could be very good for finding off targets, uh, these enzymes at a new level, but, and also finding 
what those what are the downstream consequences of those off targets? So that I think is, is sort of in our mind what was a big advance for the field. And that's the uh, HTGTS, the high throughput yeah. genome wide translocation sequencing, correct? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So now, I as a naive like somebody who does not do this at all, really. Um, I guess my question is: it, since we could sequence the whole genome, and there's the thousand dollar genome now. Um, if you know the, if you could sequence, a, a, you know, the cell that you're working with before and know the whole DNA landscape and then do these, uh, cuts gene editing and then sequence after, is there a benefit to HTGTS versus that method sequencing before and after, or uh, is that, is that well, too naive a question or is it a good question? And yeah. I think the, the benefit is, 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 is a simple one and it's sensitivity. If you have vents that cut in your genome that you've edited before, and then you want to sequence it afterwards in a population of cells, if things occurred, it, uh, 10% the frequency, but could still result in some really bad event, and they were in there, you would have to sequence uh, oh, yeah. like 10 genomes to find one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 100. The cost would get astronomical. So people have done those methods. And, you know, as an example, um, I'd have to maybe in a minute tell you one more, a couple more things about how, how the method works in three dimensions across the genome to look at all these things. But, but, but you know, as an example, um, People using the other methods would take a Cas9 CRISPR or a Talon, whatever. They would do genome sequencing or other methods, and then they would look for the off-targets, and they would predict maybe there should be 20 or 30. Mm. And, they'd, and they'd find the break site where they want to cut the normal on-target mm -hmm. and make one or two others, and, or etc. And when we use our method, we find those same ones. We find a very large fraction of all the ones they predict, which could be like 10 times more. And then we find another uh, 10 times more. We find, you know, where they found three, we might find 50 or, or even in some cases we found hundreds, uh, maybe thousands. Mm. So, I mean, so it's a sensitivity and, and, you know, there's different levels of these, but I think that the good thing is I, what I would say is you want something that's more sensitive because you can decide where you want to put your cutoff. I want something at whatever level I want, but you should know everything that's happening so you, so you can make it, you know your cutoff based on an unbiased approach rather than say, well, I found two, so it's fine when there's really 300 or there's 30. And, 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 and by the way, in some of the enzymes we've tested, some Cas9 guide RNAs, we can find any. I mean, they wow. except the break sites. So some of them are really good. And that's the real key is you can, and it's real rapid. So you can test each enzyme. And if you had 10 of them that cut along a gene that you wanted to correct, you can find the one that has no off targets. And you can also, you know, there's more, much more to it you can do than that. But um, that's sort of the first level. Okay. So can you give us an overview of HTGTS then? Yeah. Also, yeah. I'm going to give you an example of, of how this works so that we did with a, a colleague who is actually trying to alter stem cells for gene therapy. But, uh -huh. uh, um, but, and, 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 and I'll, I'll get us a little anecdote on that. But let me, I'll tell you an overview of how it works is, mm. is simple. Um, you put it, we've, it, it's, 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 the detail of the, of the mechanism you don't want to know, but, uh, but it, it took us years and years to develop. But the simple thing that we want to do is we want to put a break somewhere in the genome, anywhere we want. Uh, and then we want, we can de de devise a, a little tag for that break, a primer. And then we use, uh, we let cells break and then we let that, that break 
translocate, which means join to every other break along the same chromosome or in other chromosomes across the genome. And to join to another chromosome, there has to be another break there. Oh. And the more frequent the break is, the more of these translocations you'll detect. That makes so sense. We, so we do that. We can find it's a method that finds every other break in the genome, but it also finds the ones that it, the, the, the sequence that you make can translate, translocate to. So that's, that's the basis of the mechanism. It's a genome-wide mecha- method to find all the breaks in the genome by letting them join to the break you make. And it works that's amazingly well. That's, that's really cool. I, I, how did yeah, you guys come up with that? <laughs> well, we, we studied uh, processes in, in vivo, tra- DDJ recombination to make right. antigen body receptor genes and switch recombination and all these types of things that make breaks. And they lead to other breaks that cause lymphoid tumors and other cancers. And so we've been studying both the generation of breaks and how they translocate and what determines it. And, you know, it's both the frequency of a break that gets made that will determine it, but it's also their three-dimensional position in the genome. And we've learned a whole lot about that. And we've developed, you know, that we came up with the assay and then we spent a lot of time and effort because a lot of it was also computational biology. And we had to get computational biology going on in our lab to analyze all this data. But we spent uh, five or six or ten years, I don't know now, <laughs> get out. It started to be a process that would take person's, a couple of people doing it working full-time for a month and then, you know, another month to analyze the data. And mm. it, it was horrible and really expensive. And we got it down to something that costs very little and to do 10 times more, 100 times more than we used to be able to do with the new assays that we talked about in the Nature Biotechnology paper. We can do it uh, in, you know, just working part-time for a day and a half, you know, like doing simple lab assays. And our pipeline that we developed runs it in another day or two. So we, you can do this in just a few days, and we get thousands and thousands of, of, of these hits across the genome, which makes it into a really convenient assay for anybody who would want to use it. And that's uh, why we thought it would be so good for the stem cell field and the gene editing field. So, so to that end, you discovered essentially towards the end of this uh, abstract that um, so CRISPR is the new hot gene editing tool, and it relies on this uh, Cas9 enzyme, right? Uh, Cas9 enzyme and a guide RNA, which, so it's a Cas9 guide RNA, which yes. is it's related to the CRISPR part. And basically, the guide RNA is something that you synthesize that will match up with any gene sequence you want, and it'll direct the enzyme there to make the cleavage. Yeah, that's an unbelievably beautiful system. And and so you found that Cas9 D10A is is I guess the the best nuclease uh, to do this. No, uh, sorry, Nickase. Oh no, no, we didn't find that. Um, uh, so so that's a, that's a different story. So so we um, we tested. This was looking at the the Rag one gene, which is a gene that's mutated in a, a, a set of immunodeficient patients. And mm. some of our colleagues here want to target that gene and correct the mutation stem cells. So we made just as a proof of principle, we made four different. Cas9 guide RNAs, so mm-hmm. Cas9 CRISPR type enzyme, you know, RNA enzyme complexes that would make breaks at four different sites along that gene, and um, and they had varying levels of off targets. One of them had like forty off targets, and so that's not so good. Right. But then there other people had developed an approach called the uh, this Cas9 guide RNA nickase, and it's like you make two half enzymes, so they make. They make nicks in the DNA a little bit apart, and that makes them much more specific. And when you use use this method, it's complicated, but but it's a variation that was established. 
when wow. we used that, we found that it, it did what it was supposed to. It got rid of uh, the, the, the um, off-target. Yeah. So we verified at a very wide genome level what people had said it would do, and that's to get rid of off-targets, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Well, uh, thanks for explaining us uh, that because I'm sure this is going to be valuable for a lot of people thinking of doing gene editing, especially in stem cells. Because oh, well, yeah, I mean, and that Yosef exactly. I mean, that's why when I saw this, I was like, wow. I mean, because when I talk to a lot of people in the field, you know, this stem cell, but I feel like some of these stem cell us stem cell guys, I like to call us. Sure. We, you know, we like to think and women. we can do, we, we can do it. We could do anything. Yeah, we could do this CRISPR. Yeah, everyone's getting, you know, everyone's all excited about it. And then everyone realizes, like, wait a second, you know, like, hold on, everyone, let's take a step back. Let's be careful. There's a lot of things. And so when I saw this, I said, well, okay, this seems like uh, a, a, a very, um, you know, a technology that is exactly that, that can help everybody um, just be able to see exactly how specific, because it's all about, that. that's what we're trying to do, specificity. Gene mutation, you want to fix it, great, but make sure you didn't now just introduce a whole other set of problems. Right. Uh, how do you do that efficiently with great sensitivity? And this seems to be a, a, a good way to do it. And I guess you, I, I was going to ask, and I guess you answered it. Is it, is it something that someone in a lab uh, could do without having the years of experience that you have, you know? Um, yes. And that, that's really the question, how adaptable is it? Uh, well, can I answer makes... that one? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so to make this adaptable, what we did was to design it. I mean, you know, it, it could be used as a, you could send it to somebody and they can do it themselves. And, and it's real. I'll, I'll tell you the example to show how easy, but basically it is uh, you, you, if you have we we made a a universal bait for a donor, which is a Cas9 guide RNA with two off targets, and you know we have a cell that we can put that in. We have primers for it, and it always just shows you the on target and then the two off targets, and that works. But what we've shown in the paper is you can add any other enzyme. It can be a, a yeast enzyme that randomly cuts genomic DNA or cuts genomic DNA in human cells at some sites you didn't know. It can be a meganuclease, a talon, uh, and it can be a Cas9 guide RNA. And when you put it into the cell at the same time and use your bait, you find out both where it cuts because it's going to translocate to the cut site of the other enzyme, and you find out all the off-targets. So it's a very simple thing. I mean, people don't even have to make something specific for their own enzyme. All they have to do is introduce their Cas9 guard RNA into the cells that we've, we've pre-made for them, and then put the primer, run a very simple, you know, um, a set of normal uh, genomic-type assays, and then put it through the program. And as an example of how it works, I mean, we gave our cell line and uh, to uh, one of our uh, colleagues here, Derek Rossi, who is at uh, the PCMM, he's, he's uh, working on iPS cells and he's working on gene editing and he's trying to uh, work on uh, in correcting a mutation in, in, in stem cells. And he made a set of Cas9 guide RNAs and he looked at their on-target and off-target activity by doing deep genome sequencing. And he had five of them. And he found, of course, they each target a specific site. And, you know, one of them had a couple of off-targets. Another one had another couple more. And, and said, well, it didn't have any. And so that, that and so, and he heard me talk at one of our retreats. And I said, you know, we ought to let us give it a shot. Maybe, and I said, ah, oh, no, no, we can got this totally under control. And I said, well, you know, it's really easy. Just send your postdoc over. We'll give him the cells. Let him, you know, trans, put in the, the Cas9 CRISPR. You just do that. 
give them back to us, and you don't even have to tell us what you cut them with. We'll nice. tell you where each of your enzymes was set to target the genome. We will tell you what off-targets you found, and then we'll tell you the ones you missed. That's it's a like blind a, it's control. Like a, it's like a magic trick. It's like a magician. And, yeah, he gave it to us. <laughs> Four days later, we said, okay, this enzyme cuts this site, this enzyme cuts that, that. This one had these off-targets. So that's your major one. This one had this one, that one. And, and he said, my God, that's right. Yeah, And then he said, well, but we'll tell you something else. Your enzyme cuts this other site you didn't find in this particular case just <laughs> as efficiently as it cuts the on target. And you didn't predict, it wasn't predicted by the algorithm. You didn't show it, find it because the genome sequencing, you have to know what you're looking for. Right. Right. right? So these are unbiased. And, you know, and, and he was, um, He's a great guy. And I can just see Derek's face. I yeah, we know D. Rossi. <laughs> What's up, Derek? I know you're out there. He just blown away, you know, that he started singing the praises that this was going to be the assay that would set the standard for the field because he couldn't believe what we did, that we could do that and told him that. But, you know, that's it. You can, I mean, it's really very easy. Anybody can learn to do it. We've had like 10 or 15 people come to the lab already over the past months to learn how to do the assay. and. It all works for them. Mm-hmm. I think the only limitation is you have to have somebody to run the pipeline, but that's you have that in many uh, places yes. as computational biologists. And the assay itself is is really just is my people, my lab. If you if you've heard of them, Southern Bloods. Oh, I heard of Southern oh, Bloods. Boy. I've, I've, no I've, one I've, wants I've, to work with I've that. I've heard of them. Everybody yes, we've heard of them. <laughs> this assay is way easier than doing the yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to work with radiation either. So you know, we're developing it not for the purpose that you know for for look. I mean, off targets. We're developing it because we want to find out how sequences communicate sure, with each other sure. and translocate. But you know, when we saw the problem, we really thought this is definitely is a solution. Well, I, I you know I. But I think I'm looking at the time. We should end it there. I mean, for everyone out there, especially scientists in the stem cell world, I, I hope that you're as fascinated as I am now. I've learned a lot with this, and uh, I hope that I get to use this at some point. Because, uh, um, and for everyone who's more interested, please go read the paper in Nature Biotech. Um, you can find it there: genome-wide detection of DNA double-stranded breaks induced by engineered nucleases. And I guess um, if if they're interested in, in in using this, Fred, I mean, did they contact you, or I mean, how how does it work? Um, they can definitely that? contact us. And and the other thing is that uh, you mentioned the first authors of the paper, Richard and Jassy, are just in the final stages of writing up a Nature Protocols paper that will go into much more depth about. Right. It exactly how to do it and also why we think it's um, more useful for at least for quite a few different things than existing assays and what what it can do what it can't do that'll all be in there but in the end you know people will be able to get the uh, the pipeline from us they'll be able to get the details from us now but that hopefully that'll all be published in this nature protocols article that will be due to come out in a month i think Okay, great. That's really, really awesome. Thank yeah. you, uh, thank you again for for doing this. I, and it was exactly what I hoped it to be. Um, uh, I really appreciate you coming on with short notice. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. All right, all take right. Care. Nice talking with you. Have a good night. good night. Okay, that was a great interview, huh? That was really cool, man. Yeah. Really, I'm glad. I'm glad we got him to come on because uh, this is something not in my realm, but I hope to use this technology in the future. And uh, seems like something you're going to want to check for, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, off-target effects. We never want to discuss it because it's like we got this cool new tool, but what's the collateral damage? And nobody I know. You know what I was dying to ask him, but I didn't want to take up too much time. I was thinking about this. You remember holiday junctions from biochem class? Oh, yeah. That's that's old school. I never understood what a holiday <laughs> junction was. I think for everyone out there, Wikipedia holiday junction, it's some sort of DNA 
recombination situation that I never understood. It's like I those want- Okazaki fragments. Yeah, the Okazaki <laughs> fragments. I didn't really want to put him on the spot, but I, maybe next time we can have him come on and talk to us about holiday junctions. All right, so we're going to rant it up here. Uh, yeah. give well, me some topics. Well, before I, I, I get to the rant, I just have one question for you. Blue and black or white and gold? I'm putting you on the spot. Dude, I, I don't know how the hell people see blue and black. I see blue I see and black. And- I'm a blue and black. You're a white and gold? I mean, it's not even close to me, and that's what I find so weird. All right. Well, if you guys don't know what we're talking about and you've been living under a rock, just 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 Google blue and black dress or white and gold in Chris's case. <laughs> so you really don't see any gold there? I see hint, like a faint gold uh, gloss to it, but definitely like charcoal at best and definitely blue. So now, let, me, let me ask you this. Do you like cilantro? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why? You know, like certain people have that genetic aversion. Yes, yes. I was yeah. wondering if this may be at all connected. So far, I think this is the greatest photo ever taken of all time, just because it's basically split humanity into two groups. It really has. <laughs> but uh, it shows how fun, you know, this, this idea of color constancy, how different, you know, uh, it's this is the most extreme example I think there's ever been. But um, so, okay, so the, back to the rant topic. Um. Let's. I, I, this is we're, great. I'm excited to write right. about this. So, for some, I think the poorest design in any sort of device has been this USB plug. And for some reason, you know, they're ubiquitous for flash drives. But there's only, you know, it's like a one way street. It's not. You basically have a fifty fifty chance of plugging it incorrectly. And every time I plug in a flash drive, they don't normally tell you with that little fork to show you the correct yeah, way a little weird looking usb signal thing yeah yeah half the time you plug in a flash drive you plug it in upside down and you're like trying to shove it in there and you're like oh i did the wrong way and i'm just amazed that they designed it like that actually most plugs are like that the thunderbolt too it's just i don't understand why we can't make it symmetrical like why can't it be in the middle you know what i'm saying so it like hugs both sides yeah, I just saw like a photo somewhere where they they showed that you know plugging in, and they were like fifty fifty chance. You know, it really is. <laughs> and and I know everybody out there, no matter how good you think you are, you always get it wrong at some point. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get it wrong. <laughs> and even though sometimes, even sometimes I get it right, I still feel like it won't go in. I'm like, you know what I'm saying? It's just not a very like you said. You would think you'd come a long way where you would make it in a way where I remember when the iPhone. And the was it the iPad, the charger, you know, those old chargers, you had to get it in a certain way, but they fixed that so that you can go in any way. Yeah. Well, what's up with the USB? Why are they still making a struggle with getting the friggin' USB thing in the right orientation before it can go in? Yeah, I I just yeah, of course, again, these are high class problems, but (laughs) I, I I just I like great design and for some reason this is very ubiquitous and poorly designed i'm not sure why it, it is that way or has to be that way either but, yeah, i don't know so. well can we maybe if anyone's out there who's into uh computers design or something they could tell us that this is the way it has to be you know speaking of high class problems in our rants a buddy of mine who listens to the show after he heard the, the rant about the rock and the shoe <laughs> he told me like just after he listened to the show it happened to him on the street and he said he just started laughing to himself thinking about it because it's, it's like such a stupid problem, but happens to everyone. And I guess this is where our rants sit. 
<laughs> All right. So on that, I guess we'll end it, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. let's uh, end episode forty, man. Forty episodes in the books. Yeah, that's that's a big number for us. It's a so, big yeah. number. Let's keep it moving. We'll see you all in forty-one. All right. See you later. All right. Man.